0: Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel Murders. We are pleased to bring you the guest speaker talks from the 2018 East End Conference, held at the Astronomer Pub on Middlesex Street in the heart of the East End of London on the 3rd and 4th of November 2018. Adam Wood is the founder of non-fiction publishing house Mango Books, the editor of the Journal of the Police History Society and the executive editor of Ripperologist magazine, the leading publication on the Whitechapel murders. He is the author of the forthcoming book, Swanson, The Life and Times of a Victorian Detective, and his talk is entitled, Swanson and the Four Rippers. Uh first speaker of the afternoon is uh well, what can I say about this gentleman? Uh, chair, <laughs> chair, chair, Chairman of Mango Books. Are they here? Are they here? Yeah. Uh, chairman of Mango Books works uh, at the top office, the top suite in Mango Tower. Uh down there. And, uh, but he's going to talk to us now about one of the most uh, intriguing My opinion, anyway, intriguing detectives on the death of the case. If anyone had the big uh, big picture, it was this man. So, here to talk about uh, Swanson is Adam Wood. Thanks so much, everybody.
1: I was complaining to Mark and Andrew over lunch, so whose stupid idea is to schedule me after to Philip? And I realized I was me, (laughs) so there we are. Um, One or two of you may know that I've just started a book on Swanson. (laughs) (laughs) And what I'd like to do today is to look at his involvement in the Ripper murders. Starting with his appointment to head up the investigations from Scotland Yard and then examining three cases which today, we can see, are obviously not related to the Ripper, but at the time they were initially thought to be connected and therefore required Swanson's involvement. This is a list held in the Swanson family archives. It illustrates perfectly how we think of the Whitechapel murders from today's viewpoint. We know that each was part of a series and therefore look at them in that context. It can be difficult to assess each of the murders as a single case rather than as a whole, looking first for evidence which might link them together. But each of these attacks has to be investigated individually on their own merits, whether carried out by the Ripper or not. Swanson's involvement began after the murder of Annie Chapman, on the 15th of September 1888, Commissioner Charles Warren issued a memorandum to the newly appointed Assistant Commissioner, Rob Anderson, in which he announced he was appointed Swanson to take control of the case, commenting, He must have a room to himself, and every paper, every document, every report, and every telegram must pass through his hands. He must be consulted on every subject. I would not send any directions anywhere on the subject of the murder without consulting him. I give him the whole responsibility. At this time, Don Swanson was three weeks past his 40th birthday. He'd already served 20 years with the Metropolitan Police, and had just been promoted Chief Inspector, transferred to Central Office. His work on the Chapman case and the earlier murders of Emma Smith, Martha Haberam and Polly Nichols was intense. And just two weeks later, this was added to with the double murder of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes. Swanson now took on the overall investigation to those cases as well, adding to an enormous workload. And because Eddowes was killed in the city... Police territory, Swanson was obliged to liaise with counterparts from that force. On the 19th of October, at the end of a report commenting on the usefulness of Matthew Packer as a witness in the murder of his stride, Swanson outlined the police police investigation at that moment. I'd like to read it to you in order to emphasise how large the investigation was. 80,000 pamphlets to occupy were issued and a house-to-house search inquiry made. Not only involving the result of inquiries from the occupiers, but also searched by police. Common lodging houses were visited and over 2,000 lodges were examined. Inquiries also made by Thames police as to sailors on board ships in Docks or River. About 80 persons have been detained at the different police stations in the metropolis in the statements taken and verified by police. An inquiry has been made into the movements of a number of persons, estimated upwards of 300, respecting whom communications were received by police. And such inquiries are being continued. 76 butchers and slaughterers have been visited and the characters of the men employed inquired into. This embraces all servants who have been employed for the past six months. Up to date, although the number of letters daily is considerably lessened, the other inquiries respecting alleged suspicious persons continues is numerous. There are 994 dockets besides police reports. But even as this work was being undertaken, further atrocities were being committed, from the murder of Mary Kelly in November 1888 to that of Francis Coles in February 1891. As these attacks were committed, the investigation into each was coordinated by Swanson. In November 1889, when given evidence before a department committee, he described his working day between September and December 1888 as follows. I had to be at the office at half past eight in the morning then I had to read through all the papers that had come in, which took me till 11 p.m. Sometimes between one and two in the morning. Then I had to go to Whitechapel and see the officers, generally getting home between two and three a.m. As if the work required in these investigations wasn't stressful enough, it was conducted against a backdrop of political bickering at the top of the Met. Sir so Charles Warren's resignation, as commission was announced on the day of Mary Kelly's murder. His replacement James Monroe, left after 18 months. <coughs> by Sir Edward Bradford. But after 1889, as things eventually began to settle down in Whitechapel, because Swanson was the go-to man whenever attacks which might have been committed by the Ripper took place, it was he who was sent from Scotland Yard to investigate. And I'd like to look at three of these cases, which don't appear in the Whitechapel murders file, but nonetheless began as investigations by Swanson. The first is a well-known murder committed in October 1890. Just after seven o'clock on the evening of the 24th of October, 19 year old son Leg McDonald discovered the body of a woman lying on a pile of bricks in Crossfield Road, Hampstead in north-west London. Setting up to find a policeman and returning shortly afterwards with PC Arthur Gardner, it was discovered that the woman's throat had been cut from ear to ear and the face was smothered in blood. Gardner blew his whistle and was soon joined by fellow constables John Stalker and Frederick Algar. Medical assistants arrived in the form of Dr. Arthur Wells and a brief inspection was conducted before S Division's Inspector Thomas Wright provided an ambulance to convey the body to Hampstead Hill Police Station. Here, a more detailed examination was carried out by Dr. Wells and Divisional Surgeon Dr. Herbert Cooper. The woman's head had been almost separated from her body, with the windpipe and spinal column divided. Her skull had suffered a compound fracture, with several deep cuts and scratches found across her body. It did not take long for the press to wonder if the Whitechapel murderer had returned, this time away from his East End haunts. In fact, the very next day, the Pall Mall Gazette was one of several newspapers reporting the Central News release, which highlighted similarities. Inspector Swanson and several detectives who had been engaged from time to time in the Whitechapel inquiries, cited for Hampstead and took charge of the case. All the ground in the vicinity has been thoroughly searched, but no weapon or anything else likely to serve as a clue has been found. People who have seen the body are strongly of the opinion that the unfortunate victim was seized from behind and was once rendered speechless by one large, clean cut of a knife, as in the case of the women murdered in Whitechapel. As some points of the murder seem to resemble Jack the Ripper's handiwork, it is thought advisable to have Dr. Bond present at the post-mortem examination. Dr. Bond, it will be remembered, had a great experience of the Whitechapel murders. An abandoned pram had been found at Hamilton Terrace, some two and a half miles away. It was soaked with blood, and a brass nut found near the body by Sergeant William Brown fitted the carriage perfectly, proving that this was how the victim's body had been transported to Crossfield Road and there dumped. In fact, it hadn't taken Swanson long to realize that this murder, as horrible as it was, was not connected with the East End cases, and he handed control of the case to S Division's Inspector Thomas Bannister before returning to Scotland Yard. With no clue as to the identity of the victim, Aniston issued a description of the murdered women and her clothing to the gathered journalists in hope that their news reports would be read by someone who recognised the details. And so it was that Mrs. Burrowed of Prince of Wales Road read of the murder and explained, explained to a lodger, Clara Hogg. What a terrible murder this is in Hampstead. I see Jack the Ripper has been here. Clara just returned to her home with a family friend. After the pair had spent the morning looking for a sister-in-law, Phoebe Hogg, who had been missing since the previous afternoon. The physical description of the body made her <coughs> uneasy, and when she read reports that the victim was wearing petticoats embroidered with initials being she was convinced. To make matters worse, Phoebe's baby, Tiggy, was also missing. Clara and her friend set off for Hampstead Police Station, and there met Sergeant Edward Mercy. On being told they were there to identify the body of the murdered woman, the officer fetched Inspector Bannister and the party headed to Hampstead Mortuary where the remains had been taken. While Clara Hogg was understandably upset at the sight of the body, her friend became hysterical. Her name was Mary Pearcy. Mrs. Piercy's behaviour at the mortuary seemed strange to the officers present. Their suspicions were later raised still further when, as the police questioned Phoebe Hogg's husband Frank, he was discovered to possess a key to the house in which Mrs. Pearcy lived. Detectives arrived at her lodgings at 2 Priory Street about 3 o'clock in the afternoon and found the kitchen in darkness. On raising a green shade from the window, Sergeant Nursey saw that two of the panes had been smashed, caused, claimed Mrs. Pearcey, by her trying to catch some mice. <coughs> Looking around the kitchen, Nursey saw blood everywhere, splashes up the walls and across the ceiling, which Mrs. Pearcey tried to explain away as her suffering a violent nosebleed. <laughs> <laughs> Some on <laughs> um, a poker was found to appear and blood on it, and a large carving knife in a kitchen dresser drawer was stained with blood. Copies of love letters sent to Frank Hogg were found in a box in the bedroom. While this search was being conducted, Mary Piercy alternately sat at the piano and played, or reclined in an armchair and whistled softly to herself. Inspector Bannister failed to seen enough, and he yeah. soon took Mrs. Percy into custody and by cab to Kentish Town Police Station where she was charged with the willful murder of Phoebe Hogg and an infant daughter, although at that point the baby had still not been found. However, almost as soon as a description of the infant appeared in the Sunday papers, her body was found lying under a clump of nettles by Hawker and Oliver Smith as he walked along a vacant lot in Finchley Road. There was no doubt that Mary Piercy was guilty of the murders, and despite some doubt as to her mental well-being, she was hanged by executioner James Berry on the 23rd of December 1890. The brutality of her, ta- of her attack on Phoebe Hogg shocked Victorian society. Arthur Conan Doyle and later William Stewart contemplated a jeweler the ripper, citing Mary Pierce's ferocity as evidence that a woman was indeed capable of such ripper attacks as the Whitechapel murders. Now the next case is a return to Whitechapel and an attack on a young lady who made her living through uncertain means, but on this occasion lived to tell the tale. Inspector of Chapter the Ripper loomed large on the 19th of November 1892, when 18-year-old Emily Smith made her way to New Scotland Yard, made a statement to Inspector Frost and Sergeant Freeman that she'd just been attacked in Whitechapel, narrowly escaping, being murdered. After three hours of questions and examination, a 10-page statement was drawn up and signed, and presented the following day to Commissioner Edward Bradford with the result that the case was put in the hands of Chief Inspector Swanson. It was an extraordinary story. <coughs> Emily Smith had packed her lot into her 18 years. She apparently begun work as a dressmaker, but then posed as an artist model, and in 1891 began living with a German gentleman who she called Norton, but didn't know his real name. They had parted a few months before, and she had returned to live with her father and stepmother in a family home in Caledonian Road. Miss Smith was walking down Cheapside towards St. Paul's Churchyard, early on the 5th of November, a wet and foggy day, as she passed Lockhart's coffee shop at number forty-one, a tall man called out, "Good night, Nellie," which she ignored. However, he was at her side again soon afterwards. This time, inviting her to go for a cup of tea. After some hesitation, she accepted, and a couple of walks some distance past the mansion house, along Lombard Street, and then into Friendship Street. From where a narrow, narrow alleyway was taken to a dimly lit coffee house, whose character one newspaper said could be judged by the fact that the team was in thick cuts without spoons. <laughs> the man suggested that they finish their refreshments and go to his office at Upton Park, and again the young woman agreed. They made their way along a maze of alleyways before finding themselves back on Fenchurch Street, this time at the Aldgate end. From here, they took an omnibus along Whitechapel High Street to the corner of Commercial Road. Not knowing the area, Miss Smith asked her companion where they were, and the answer she received no doubt caused her no little concern. This is Whitechapel. Oh, then this is where the girls were murdered. Not girls, old women, you mean. They were better out of the way. The man pointed towards Lehman Street, saying, that is where Jack the Ripper is known. Strangely, Miss Smith stayed in the man's company, taking a tram along the Whitechapel Road, uh, Commercial Road, rather, as he pointed out various shops and told her of his acquaintance with the owners. They alighted at the George Tave on the corner of Commercial Road and Jubilee Street. I walked south along Sutton Street, just a few yards before entering a beer house. Although the man ordered a small soda for himself, stating he never drank anything stronger, and Miss Smith had a small whiskey. It was here for the first time that the light was fully upon him, and Miss Smith was able to furnish a detailed description for the Scotland Yard detectives. He was tall and thin, looking like a consumptive, with high cheekbones, his face being pale. He stood over five foot nine inches and wore a hard bowled hat. He had very dark hair, although his moustache, which was curled at either end, was of a sandy tint. He had very peculiar eyebrows meeting over the nose, and the ends turned up towards the temples. She seems to have taken taken particular notice of his eyes, describing them as odd and light, one being a lightish brown and the other a bluey gray. He had a strange habit of blinking them, almost squinting. His face, except the upper lip, was closely shaved. When he laughed both the dog teeth showed cavities. His forehead seemed rather square, and although speaking English well, he struck her as being a foreigner. She did not notice either his collar or necktie, but otherwise he took a close look at his clothes. He wore a short single dress of jacket of black rubbish material, and trousers were a striped blue pattern. He had a very uncommon sort of watch chain, consisting of a number of small squares sprung onto a, a connecting plain chain, but she did not see his watch. He wore no rings, and Miss Smith saw no peculiarity in either his hands or his boots. He walked with a military gait and carried neither cane nor umbrella. Miss Smith evidently had a good memory for detail. The couple left the beer house and continued walking along Sutton Street. Although the street was nearly always dark and deserted, because of the fog, they approached a the railway bridge 100 yards further along in almost complete darkness. Almost immediately after the arch, they turned right into a narrow passage to the right of the railway arms, known as Station Place, which because of a hoarding erected around construction works of a new platform for the railway, was almost pitch black, despite the presence of a lamp on the wall a few feet away. Miss Smith refused to go any further, despite her companion claiming his office was at the end of the alley. When she declined once more, he replied quickly, and I'll set to you now, and he grabbed her by the neck and the collar of her dress, dragging her into the darkness. The man twisted her around so that her back was to him, and as he did so, she caught a glimpse of her knife in his hand. Screaming loudly, he managed to hardly break his hold. She turned and brought her knee up sharply, striking right her assailant in what one newspaper euphemistically called the lowest part of the abdomen. <laughs> 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 it. She shouted out in agony and reached his grip allowing Miss Smith to escape the relative brightness of Sutton Street and the comfort of two women who were passing. Her attacker was nowhere to be seen. After reading the statement and meeting Miss Smith, Chief Inspector Swanson instructed Sergeant Bradshaw to accompany her over the complete route from Cheapside, where she met the man, to the attempted murder spot. The press quickly reported that the police held reservations about the truth of her story, a representative of the Paramount Gazette visited New Scotland Yard to be told that the police received literally hundreds of similar statements. And they did not attach any more importance to Miss Smith's story than to others sent to Scotland Yard from time to time. A reporter visited Shadwell Police Station less than 100 yards from the scene of the attack and was told by an inspector there that he knew nothing about it. The station had not even been communicated with by the authorities of Scotland Yard. Despite this apparent disinterest from official quarters, it was of great interest to the press that the description of the attacker tallied with that of a man Supposedly seen with Elizabeth Stride by fruit seller Matthew Packer. The newspapers also come to the fact that, as in all the Whitechapel outrages, the passage into which the <coughs> woman was lured had both an entrance and an exit. The fact that the Whitechapel murderer might have returned, despite there being nothing in the way of evidence other than Emily Smith's version of events, particularly really impressed one reporter from the Western Mail, who seemed to give echoes of the Kosmitsky theory. The theory that the Ripper had been handed over by his friends to the police as a dangerous lunatic, and was now safely under their charge, had generally been credited as fact. Today, that theory has been shattered. Miss Smith returned to the family home at Benfield Street. There, she received visits from numerous reporters, leaving her increasingly weary. I was tired to death in talking to them, and some of them were certainly not courteous, insinuating that I would made up a lot of lies. I slammed the door in their faces. I'm sorry if I was rude, but I really cannot help it." If Inspector Swanson and his colleagues believe that Emily Smith fabricated the incident, at least took their investigations into the story seriously. Asked by one reporter whether she'd seen much of Sergeant Bradshaw, tasked by Swanson to look into the supposed victim's movements, Miss Smith replied, "'Quite enough. He simply haunts me. And no later than today, I went into a restaurant in the Tottenham Court Road to have something to eat, and he also came and sat beside me. It was he who accompanied me on my tour over the ground in Whitechapel yesterday, but he has nothing to say for himself, and he's particularly dull. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, fed up with increasing doubt in the face of not single lead being uncovered, on the 26th of November, Emily Smith went to the offices of Holgolf's sisters Peacock and Goddard to make a sworn declaration that the incident happened exactly as she described it. She revealed that she and two friends had attempted to retrace her steps on the day in question, but failed. Completely in attempts to locate a coffee shop off Fenchurch Street, which so disgusted the press by serving their tea and cups without spoons. Undeterred, the group went to the Railway Arms and asked landlord John Thorby about her visit on the night of the attack. He looked at Miss Smith very closely, but he didn't recognise her, despite her reminding him that she asked for a small whiskey, only to be told that the Rye had a licence for beer and wine only. Emily Smith then described the experience she had on the Sunday evening when, remarkably, they'd seen the man again, attempting to accost another young woman. I was in the King Ludd Public House at Ludgate Circus at about 10 o'clock, and whilst having a sandwich and something to drink, two gentlemen there were seen there by me. One of them had a most wonderful resemblance to my would-be murderer. I was immediately struck by the likeness, but whilst he had the odd eyes i described, I could not see the decaying cabbages and his dog teeth mentioned in my statement at Scotland Yard. I asked the barmaid, did she notice anything peculiar about his eyes? And she said, yes, they are odd, and I've seen him staring very hard at you. I then asked it. I then asked her, had she seen either of them in the Kingland before? And she said, no, I think they're complete strangers. Miss Smith followed the men out of the barn up towards St Paul's, where they picked up two girls and walked with them up Sheepside past the Bank of England. They reached a point opposite a building with an archway where they stopped, and a dense fog was setting in. Miss Smith stood in a doorway for the purpose of hearing his voice. There was a passage nearby, and she heard him say, let us go up this way. The girl said, I'll do nothing of the kind. So Forson proceeded back towards Cheapside, and she followed, but lost them in the fog near the bank. Miss Smith stated, I told this to Chief Inspector Swanson the next day, and he wondered why I didn't give the man to custody. I told him I never could see the teeth, but that he was the man with the same eyes, the same height, same style of dress and the same walking style. I honestly now swear that I'm all but convinced he was the man who took me from Cheapside Station Price. I am positive not bad to identify him again. To end this statement, I will say that throughout the whole of the occurrences above detailed that I was perfectly sober. I've never been drunk in my life. I'd never been in court, either as a prisoner, a witness, or in any other capacity. Chief Inspector Swanson must have been exasperated with Emily Smith's story. Privately, he, he had no doubt, he no doubt had his own beliefs, probably mirroring those being suggested openly in the press. The description of her attacker was so incredibly detailed that it's reminiscent of George Hutchinson's description of a man he apparently saw with Mary Kelly, another statement often taken with a pinch of salt. Despite her protestations in her declaration, she was not an unfortunate, was Mail's comment that during their interview with her, she was very neatly dressed and her appearance did not at all suggest the horrible profession she followed indicates the opposite. Was this the case of a young woman weaving a tale of being attacked by Jack Ripper in order to go some form of celebrity, but then fiercely defending herself once oppressed to a closer look at her lifestyle? Emily Smith seems to disappear into the mist of time. Nothing was heard of her following this warned depuration, and no arrests were ever made. Our final case took place almost exactly two years later, in November 1894. It was a shocking murder set in the midst of West London's artistic community. As Herbert Schmaltz left his home late in the evening of the 25th of November to post a letter, probably the last thing he expected was to witness a murder. A 37-year-old pre life artist, who had executed at Royal Academy, walked along Holland Park Road towards Melbury Road at 11.30pm, when he saw a woman walking towards him accompanied by a tall, well-dressed man. Smalls passed the couple and, having walked a short distance to the post box, turned to return to his home. By this time, the couple had reached number one Holland Park Road, home to the eminent painter Valentine Prince, and were standing together with a woman leaning against the wall and the man facing her, about a foot away. The artist saw the man suddenly fall against his partner, remaining in that position for a second or so, and then both fell to the pavement. The woman cried out, You brute! Schmaltz rushed forward, shouting, "What the devil are you up to?" At which point the man jumped up and ran towards Addison Road, slowly at first, and then quickening his pace. Chasing the attacker, Schmaltz ran past the woman, who by this time was on her knees. As he passed, he heard a groan. "Oh Christ!" The artist followed the man as he turned into Addison Road and then Kensington Road, but lost him in Kensington High Street. He returned to his home and immediately heard the blast of a nearby police whistle. While Schmaltz had been chasing after the attacker, a man named, a man named Herman Lauber had entered Holland Park Road, and he saw the victim lying across the pavement her head towards the curb. When she didn't react to his shouts, he went to nearby eight Holland Park Studios, where his friend Alfred Kobold lived. Kobold, another well-known artist, listened to the Malver story and went to look for himself. Seeing the still body, he rushed off to the nearest, find the nearest policeman, meeting PC William Patterson on Kensington Crescent. The blast of his whistle attracted another passing officer, P.C. Gordon. Three men rushed back to Holland Park Gardens. Alfred Cobold recalled what happened next. There was something dark around the body, but I could not see what it was. It was too dark. When the constables came, the bullseye was used, and I saw blood on the pavement around the head, and it ran into the gutter. Sending P.C. Gordon to fetch F. Division uh, Divisional Surgeon Dr. Meredith Townsend, Hudson investigated the scene. Lying close to the body was a cherry wood walking stick, one end <coughs> in the pool of congealing blood. Dr. Townsend arrived and quickly took a deep wound. Found a deep wound to the left side of the woman's neck, from which a large quantity of blood had flowed. The body was taken to Kensington Mortuary for further examination. Early the following morning, a builder's labourer named James Andrews found a knife sticking in a scaffold board in the yard of his employer at nearby Edward's Terrace. The board was lying on the ground some six or seven foot from the front gate, over which the knife had seemingly been thrown. Andrews called the police, and Sergeant Thompson arrived to take possession of the weapon, returning it along with a cherry wood walking stick to Kensington Police Station. <coughs> Early newspaper reports, perhaps unsurprisingly, there voice voiced the concern. This was another crime by the White Chapel murderer. Some even even running headlines such as, the Jack the Ripper murder in Kensington. Whether the newspaper newspapers read by the attacker and inspired him to write the authorities is uncertain, But on the 25th November, three days after the murder, a letter was received by Inspector John Smith at the police station at Kensington. It read as follows, Dublin, November 27th, Dear Sir, the murder that was committed, I did it. I did it just to the right of the door of a gentleman. I got her by the throat and tried to choke her without success. I got her on the ground and I cut her neck with a sloid knife, it was a very good cut. When I cut her, a fellow was coming along, so I flew for my life. But left the stick and the knife was thrown away in the back lane. I did the murder at 12.30, so goodbye. On the job from Jack the Ripper. You will find my name is well known at certain places around here. Possibility of another murder by the Ripper, however remote, resulted in Chief Inspector Swanson liaising with local officers, as with the cases of Phoebe Hogg and Emily Smith. Another familiar name from the White Mur- Murders Investigations was involved in the Kensington case was Dr. Thomas Bond on the 27th of November conducted a post-mortem on the victim's body. I noticed the blood which had flowed from the wound. It was principally on the right side and it clotted on the hair and face. There were only a few splashes on her dress. I formed the opinion that the woman was probably on the ground at the time when the wound was inflicted, with her face turned towards the right side. The cut was made with the sweep of the knife commencing first on the left side of her lance, first underneath the left ear and two inches below it. The cut was caused by a right-handed person and was much deeper on the left side than on the right. The marks of pressure on the throat were caused before the wound. On the left side was a thumb mark. I have seen the knife produced. It is just the sort of knife which would have produced such a sweeping wound. By now, the victim had been identified as 27-year-old Augusta Dawes, born in Bristol to a respectable family. But he more recently is speaking out to live in more recent years, eking out a living as a prostitute in London. At the time of her death, she was living at 26 St. Clement's Road, Notting Hill. Also in the house was her unfortunate Lillian Craver, who knew daughters, Gus Dudley, and who told detectives that a friend had one child who lived with her, a young girl. According to Reynolds newspaper, the child was just three months old and had been carried in Lillian Craver's arms when she tended the mortuary to identify her friend's body. Mrs. Kate Forsythe told police she'd known Augusta for two years, and until recently she'd lodged with Forsyth at Hammersmith. At that time, been receiving a weekly income from the child's father, sometimes one pound, on other occasions 25 shillings. Mrs. Forsyth revealed that Augusta also had a second older child, whom she believed was in the workhouse. One newspaper claimed that Augusta at one time had been a Sunday school teacher near Bry Road in Kensington. Lillian Craver had last seen Gus at about 6pm on the evening of her death when she left the house alone. The next time she saw her was in the Kensington Mortuary. Far from taunting the police, the arrival of the Ripper letter proved to be the evidence that she had been looking for. The day after the murder, East Coast, officials at East Coast School at Hampton Wick, an establishment for boys from privileged families considered intellectually weak, had reported one of their older boys had been absenting himself without permission. It was not the first time that this particular pupil, 21-year-old Reginald Saunderson, had taken leave of the school, but on this occasion, also missing were a chair walking stick and a sloid knife, a Swedish-style tool which the boys used during carpentry lessons. Chief Inspector Swanson and Inspector John Smith went to East Cope, which had been established in 1880 by, 1882 by Dr John Langdon Down, who had identified the condition Down syndrome in 1862. As Dr. Langdon Down operated medical practice at Harley Street, his wife Mary ran Eastcote on a day-to-day basis. Mrs. Langdon Down told the detectives that Reginald Saunderson had arrived at Eastcote on the 17th of December 1888, a month far after his 15th birthday. He was now the eldest boy at the school, having celebrated his 21st birthday the previous November. The detective showed the Ripper letter and envelope to schoolmaster Francis Rollison, who immediately recognised the handwriting of Saunderson's boys were not allowed to leave the grounds without supervision by a master, or the matron, Miss Young, but Saunderson had absconded three or four times between 1888 and 1892, and had often been a source of trouble. To Mrs Langdon Down's knowledge, he'd never been violent, but she had heard he once said he would put a knife into Miss Young. He'd last been seen around 6pm on the day of the murder, when he attended church with the other boys. Reginald Saunderson was born in Cavan Island, one of ten children to Llewellyn Treham Bassett Saunderson, formerly of eleven fazars, now Justice of the Peace. His uncle was Colonel Edward J. Saunderson, Conservative MP for North Vaharl. Llewellyn Saunderson reported how his son had suffered an injury to his head in early childhood, and had undergone treatment until the age of eleven. For the next two years, he attended a school before being placed under the care of a clergyman. Then he was kept at home for several months, but due to his increasingly strange behaviour, his father took medical advice and enrolled him into East Coast under the care of Dr. Landon Down. There was apparently no history of mental illness in the family, and Meginald's weak-mindedness appeared solely as a result of his childhood accident. It was widely reported that in recent months he'd taken a deep interest in the trial of James cannon Reid, who had murdered Florence Dennis in June 1894, was found guilty on the 15th of November, ten days before the murder of Augusta Dawes. Some on the envelope in which the supposed Ripco letter had arrived showed it being sent from the post office at Monkstown in Dublin. So contact was made with the Royal Irish Constabulary. And Sergeants Thompson and Dyson of the Let's Division were dispatched to Ireland. Reginald Saunerson had made a meandering journey to Dublin immediately after the attack on Augusta Dawes, along the way, carrying out the worst example of covering one's tracks as could be found. Three hours after the murder, at about 2 a.m. on the 26th of November, he approached Knightsbridge barracks and spoke to a trooper of the Second lifeguards Guards, who was on sentry duty. After first asking for a glass of water, Swanson remarked he like to enlist. He ignored the reply to a return to the barracks in the morning. Suddenly, exclaiming he had no money, and asked would the sentry like to buy a razor. The sentry did and handed over three shillings. The future G-10's next experience was at Gower Street Railway Station about 5.20 a.m., where he approached a porter named Thomas Jefferson, saying he needed to use the laboratory. Being told there was a charge of a penny, the desperate Saunderson complained he had no money, but instead offered a cricket cap from his pocket, which on later inspection was found to have the name Saunderson sewn inside. A fishmonger's assistant named William Hollier was driving a cart car towards Harrow when, around 8.15 a.m. He saw Saunderson walking on the road. Ollier agreed to the request of a lift and once settled in his seat, the new passenger suddenly said he'd witnessed the most dreadful murder of a woman in Kensington the previous night. Somewhat bizarrely, Ollier asked no questions about the incident and nothing more was said until he set Saunderson down at the High Street Harrow. Ten minutes later, Saunderson knocked on the door of Henry Davidson, a master at Harrow School, who knew his father. The weary traveller told Mr Davidson he'd cycled all the way from Portsmouth, where he lived with his aunt. While he'd been visiting a friend near Wilson, his bike had been stolen. He had no means to return and wondered whether Mr. Davidson could kindly lend him some money. Saunson went on to claim they had been murdered the previous night on Westminster Bridge. And as he passed by, a policeman had called to him asking to help the lift, lift the body of a woman who had a throat cut. Mr. Davidson gave the young man £1.00 who then left at 10.30am. Half an hour later, he returned saying the money lent was not enough to cover his fare. Could he please have another half a crown? Receiving this, Saunson went on his way. With money in his pocket, the murderer was thus able to purchase a train ticket from Harrow to Dublin, a journey requiring several changes, which began just after midday on Monday, the 26th of November. The following evening, Colour Sergeant Thomas Bryan of the Royal Dublin Fusiliers was in duty at the Linen Hall Barracks when Reginald Saunson approached him, accompanied by a private saying he wanted to enlist in the army. When asked for his details, Saundersen said his name was Drake, and that he came from Eton College. As it was too late for him to be interviewed that night, Saundersen was permitted to sleep at the barracks, and that evening he had written a letter to Kensington Police Station, signed Jack the Ripper. He was examined by the army doctor the next day, and subsequently rejected, but allowed to stay at the barracks another evening. Saundersen left the next morning, but by this time details of the murder of Augusta Dawes had been telegraphed to the Royal Irish Constabulary. Four days later, local district inspector William Miller traced a fugitive to a nearby home of a Mrs. Jowes. Searching his prisoner, Inspector Miller found copies of the Star and the St. James Gazette, both dated the 26th of November, both of which contained accounts of the Kingston murder, one with a knife and the blade of another. Saunderson was taken before a magistrate and reminded at Amal Prison for eight days. He'd been held there for four days when Sergeants Thompson and Dyson from the Met arrived and took him into their custody. He appeared before Magistrate Mr Curtis Bennett at the West London Police Court for the remand hearing, where it was reported that, although he appeared respectful for the bench, to the bench, on occasion, his eyes vacantly wandered around the court, and he gave his face quite a painful expression of dwarf mental powers. Having heard the evidence, Mr Curtis Bennett directed at the prisoner who he reminded at uh, Holloway Jail. The committee hearing took place over several weeks, attended by Swanson with the prisoner's father. Much discussion took place for Swanson's mental condition and his suitability to stand trial, with psychiatric specialists, including our old friend Dr. Vaughan Brunsloe, examining the prisoner and reporting unanimously he was unfit to stand trial. (coughs) At the Old Bailey on 28th of January 1895, Dr. Edward Walker of Holloway Jail stated that he kept the prisoner under observation since the 25th of, 28th of December. And in that time, his mental state deteriorated. <coughs> the prisoner betrayed an obviously unsound mind and committed sporadic bouts of violence so that he had to be placed in a plaided cell. In the face of, face of such evidence, Saunderson was found unfit to plead. And on the 2nd of February, 1895, Home Secretary Herbert Asquith authorised the removal of Saunderson from Holloway to be detained under Her Majesty's pleasure, wrote Broadmoor, Nilsit Asylum. He remained there until his death in 1943, aged 69. During his 48 years at Broadmoor, he was noted he was an excellent chess player. And in fact, in 1903, he represented his country in an ireland england correspondence match. Reginald Saunderson was obviously not Jack the Ripper, neither was Mary Pearcy, and it's likely that Emily Smith's attacker didn't even exist. Nevertheless, these cases all have to be investigated fully, as did hundreds of leads, generated with the sinister links to the Whitechapel murders. It's interesting that just three months on the Sorensen's transfer to Broadmoor, the Pall Mall Gazette, and a piece on the crimes of the Ripper commented, theory entitled to most respect, because it's presumably based upon the best knowledge, was that of Chief Inspector Swanson, the officer who was associated with the investigation of all the murders, Mr. Swanson believes the crimes to have been the work of a man who is now dead. This is taken to be a reference to Kosminski, but which one? I'd like to tell you the truth behind Donald Thompson's claims as marginalia, but I'm afraid I've run out of time.
0: that was Adam Wood at the 2018 East End Conference. We'd like to thank Adam Wood, Mark Ripper and Andrew Firth for making the release of this talk possible. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by casebook.org where you'll find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews and conference presentations all about Jack the Ripper, East End history and Victorian true crime. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcast releases, you can contact us on the Casebook message boards or find us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for RipperCast.